Hey guys, if you can think about how you found this podcast, maybe it's on Instagram or TikTok, maybe someone shared it with you. I don't run ads for the show or have sponsorships, so the only way this grows is through word of mouth. If this was valuable for you in any way, my only ask is if you could share this with someone who you think would help their investing journey or business. Thanks a lot, and let's get to the episode. Welcome to STR Like the Best. I'm your host, Michael Chang. It's my pleasure to welcome Taylor Wing to the show. Taylor, thanks for joining us today. Michael, good morning. Happy to be here, and thanks for having me on this podcast. I'm excited to talk with you and break some things down, spread some knowledge and some wealth. Love it, love it. So we were talking before the show, and I wanted to find a good way to introduce you, but I think this is, like, first time I've ever heard of this. So you got married in jail? Tell us more about this. <laughs> That's my favorite icebreaker, because then people, maybe they won't mess with me. <laughs> but yeah, I tell people I got married in jail and I don't give them any context, but the background, the story is that it was actually during COVID, didn't do any hard time. So I'm not that tough, but what happened was all the, the courthouses and the magistrates, whatever were shut down. So I was trying to get married. I was just about to go on a deployment. So I wanted to get this thing done and I had to figure out where to go. So the only place that was open was a tiny little magistrate inside the local County Detention Center. So there I was on my lunch break. I was in uniform. I was in the Army. And I uh, just pulled one of my fellow lieutenants out and one of our section chiefs. We come on our lunch break, the most romantic thing ever, to the local jail, had to leave our phones in the car, get buzzed in. And we got it done, probably in now within 10, 15 minutes. And took a little photo out in front of the County Detention Center there. And <laughs> That's our story. That's our love story. I'm glad you're creative and like getting, getting something done. And I think we'll talk more about real estate, short-term rentals, long-term rentals. Kind of common thread is like problem solving. You like have an issue and you can figure out a creative solution to that. You're that much further ahead. So congrats on a very unique, a very unique wedding. <laughs> Please, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Is it really cool? You're the second West Pointer we've had on the show. So tell us a little bit more about your background and how you got into real estate. Absolutely. Would love to. So the cliff notes of me, born and raised in Fresno, California, and always wanted to go to West Point. Like probably since I was walking, I was thinking, hey, I got to go to West Point. Luckily, I got in. So my my dream at the time came true. Got into West Point, graduated the class of 2018, did my undergrad in Chinese language and business management, but commissioned in the army as a second lieutenant and then branched into artillery. So for those that don't know what artillery is, it's those big cannons, those old war movies. I go boom and shoot rounds 12, 15 miles out. That's what I did. I specialized in that. And I went and got posted at, with the 82nd Airborne Division at Fort Bragg. So paratroopers would jump out of planes and shoot cannons. So that's what I did really while cool. I was in the Army. So Some pretty... Like, like the HIMARS? <laughs> is it like the stuff you read about in, Ukraine, in the Ukraine? Like the HIMARS? Like th- those kind of... That's, yep. That's all within our umbrella of specialty. So like rockets, anything that's fires related where we support the maneuver element with long range fire. That's what we do. We blow things up. So, <laughs> what's, the biggest gun, what's the biggest gun you fire? It's probably those rocket systems. Those things can take out a whole grid square on on a map. So they're pretty lethal. They're pretty. Those rockets are very expensive. <laughs> sorry to interrupt you. This is really cool. But I'm sorry. Please continue. Yeah, that was my kind of career in the army. Did a couple of deployments, and then. When I was a lieutenant in the army, I figured out, is this what I really want to do for the next 20 or so years? Because I didn't know, was I going to be a lifer, general one day, or is there something else out there for me? And it was a great job. I loved being like on the line with the troops and everything, but I felt like there was a little bit more out there for me. And I met my 
girlfriend, Helen, or wife at now. And uh, I didn't want to be gone that much. So I wanted to settle some roots. And what I really wanted was that time freedom. Everyone talks about financial freedom, having the passive income and being able to live life on your own terms. I fell in love with that idea. I've read a lot of Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I was like, I got to figure this thing out because yeah. I, I don't really want to do 20 years of this and being gone. And if I have kids, we went all in. I basically had a, like a Roth IRA with 30 something grand in it. I liquidated that whole thing and did my first burr. I pulled it out, was able to refinance on the back end, get all my capital back. And I had a brand new renovated rental property. And after that, man, it, it clicked for me. We bought 20 something properties in the last two years or so since we've been doing real estate, wow. all through creative finance and birth strategies. So now we own a total of 32 doors. It all started off with getting back. I studied my butt off. I was on a deployment and just everything I could absorb about real estate. I took it all in and I made it a goal. Hey, when I get back from this deployment, I'm going all in. So got my VA loan, bought a house that we lived in, a house hacked it. I mean, it's Fayetteville, North Carolina properties. I bought it for 95 grand, moved in a roommate into that bedroom. Yeah. And he basically his rent covered my whole mortgage. So I was living in that property, did my first burr. And then I was like, wow, this is easy. <laughs> this is not rocket science. I'm not Elon Musk or anything, putting people on the moon or on Mars. This is so easy for me. So again, yeah, in the last, I bought my first house in 2020 and we're at 32 doors about close to three years that's after crazy. that. Yeah, we moved pretty quick. <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. It speaks to your ability to move quick and size your bet correctly. And it's, it's actually funny that we, t I was actually having breakfast with my wife this morning. We actually talked, we we're talking a little bit about a concept that you touched on and I want to hit on that about buying that first home. But Talk to us a little bit about your, so 32 doors, how many properties is that actually? 22 total. 22, wow, that is a very size portfolio and three years, congratulations. And what is creative financing for folks that don't know? What does that mean? To me, what creative financing is anything out of the realm of your traditional conventional transaction. Not 80, 90% of most folks, they think, all right, here's how you buy a house. It's very black and white. You got to go to the bank. You go get a loan, get pre-qualified, you get your credit hit, they check your DTI, they do the whole financial colonoscopy to see who the heck you are and what your credit worthiness is. And then you get a loan. And then that's a great way to buy a property. It's usually cheaper money and great rates, 30-year fixed mortgages if you're buying residential, but it's not really scalable. Plus, you can only have 10 Fannie Freddie loans in your name anyway. So if you go that route, my three-year plan would probably would have been more like a 15 or a lifetime plan if I wanted to buy this many properties instead of a, moving so fast. So I bought one property conventional and I quickly realized this is not scalable. So I basically mastered creative finance, which is how I bought everything else. And creative finances could be taken on properties subject to the pre-existing mortgage or what you hear is like sub two a lot of times, the cash phrase, seller financing. The house I live in right now, I bought via seller financing. I live in this house with a 3% interest rate I closed on last month. You're not going to find 3% interest rates right now if you try to go and get a loan. Novation agreements, like you name it, anything outside of the realm of conventional is what I consider creative. And I love it too, because there's no, it's infinite possibilities. You're making up all the terms, you're making up the rates. It's just how well you can negotiate. So you're creating good deals. No, that's great. And so I think that problem solving aspect that you touched on, that's fantastic. So tell us about the house that you live in now. You just, you just moved in recently. Yep. So I got out of the army and bought this house and it's an <laughs> awesome property. <laughs> it's a, it's a waterfront property. It's a million dollar property. I live in with a dock. It's got a boat lift. 
it's a nice house that we can grow as a family. It's 2,400 square feet or so, a double lot. Love this house. It's everything that we ever wanted. When we first started off our journey together, my wife and I, we were like, we want a house on the waterfront down here because Florida, you got to be on the water down here. It's, yeah. it's fishing, boating. It's part of the lifestyle down here. So we wanted to be a part of that and finally got the house we always wanted. But I wouldn't, yeah, wouldn't be able to afford it if it wasn't for seller finance. So tell us about that deal, actually. So I'm very curious. We rent, so I would love to get a forever home in the waterfront. Selfishly, I'm going to ask. You said seller finance. Did it have yep. a mortgage attached or it was paid off? Free and clear. Free and clear. Yep, so, it was so, free and clear. So for folks that, just the differentiation, when subject to or sub two is when you assume a loan, right? There's already a loan, a mortgage on the house, and you're assuming the loan. There's ways to do, creative ways to do that. But fundamentally, that's sub two. Seller financing generally is when the seller owns it free and clear. Free and clear just means that there's no mortgage and then they become the bank and they, you, they owe loan you the quote unquote loan you the money to buy the house. First off, congrats on 3%. Tell, if you don't mind talking about it, so 3%, is it 30 years? Is there a balloon? How is that structured? Yep. So it's a 30 year amortization period. So for those that don't know what that is, that's just how long the loan is amortized out until but it's a five-year note and a balloon is due in five years. So I'll make my payments of principal and interest for the next five years. And it's amortized as if the payments were out 30 years. And then at the five-year mark, I just have a balloon payment for whatever principal balance is still due. So folks out there, balloon. So what that means is it's a five-year note. So you have to, if you have a balloon payment at a certain point, you have to either, you have to pay off the principal. You can either refinance it, you can sell it, you can get it extended, but you have to, basically it forces an action in five years. Something needs to happen. It's not like a regular 30 year loan where you just pay it off for 30 years and then at the end of 30 years you own the house. So was that like a big negotiating point for you when you were with the seller? Or maybe, maybe this is zoom out. What were some of the key negotiate, negotiating factors for you um, as you were uh, negotiating this deal and exercising your creativity? Yeah. So for me, the most important things when I negotiate are always going to be down payment because I never want to give a lot of money up front and interest rates. I'll actually pay more money up front rather than and if I can get a better interest rate and pay less over time. For this house, I was submitting some aggressive offers. My initial offer was 10% down, 0% interest, which, which didn't quite fly, but at least it got my foot in the door. So we were able to work off that. And then we agreed to 3% interest and 20% down. But for me, th those two factors are always my main negotiating points. I don't really, 20% usually is the most I ever want to put down. Yeah. And uh, I never, I've never structured a note more than 5% interest. Okay. So okay. interest and down payment are what I focus on mostly. And I'll give them price. Yeah, I think that was one more, that's what I wanted to hit on. Because a lot of people say self-financing works because you are able to offer the price that the seller wants. So they're like, look, I want a million dollars for the house, right? And like, okay, I'll give you a million, 50 year amortization, 5% down. <laughs> yep. IO for the first 10 years. You can structure something like pretty seller, uh, buyer friendly, excuse me, and, but you can give the price and then you do the math, you probably come out ahead. But I'm very, I'm curious about that. Like how did that price negotiation go? Did you have a number and you're like, all right, fine, the number, but I want my terms. Like how did you, how did you go about that? Exactly like that. And what's funny, because I this is what I do now, is I structure creative finance deals. That's my specialty. So cool. a lot of people are hyper-focused on price. And it, you feel like 
in a, from a negotiation standpoint, hey, if I get this number, I win. I somehow win this game. So for a lot of folks, especially if you notice properties that have been sitting on market for 180 days plus or expired listings, they're probably really stubborn folks that want a very specific number. So you can meet them, say, hey, I'm going to give you this price. I'm going to let you win. But in exchange for giving you price, I want terms. And then you just have, and then you're in the driver's seat. Here are my terms. So that way both parties feel like they, they truly do win because they're <laughs> just carrying their equity over time. They're winning. They're just yeah. carrying that equity over time. Very cool. No, that, that, that's a great, I think you really framed it the right way. You both are winning, right? And both in your minds are winning, right? He went, the person, the seller wins on a point that they care very deeply about. Maybe they don't care about, maybe they don't have good reinvestment opportunities. Maybe they don't really need the cash. Maybe it's a tax, the tax reason, whatever reason, there most of the reason it doesn't really matter, but they're like, Hey, I got the million dollar price tag. I want it. But for you, it's yeah, like, okay, I don't even want to put down 3% versus 8%. There's obviously math that you can run. No one really does it, but you can obviously run the math to see who comes out ahead. But look, just overall kind of congratulations on that. Any, any other kind of like key before we move on, any other key points that you want to tease out on that experience? Maybe like buying the primary versus an investment property that you use the strategy for. Like any other people are curious about the strategy, like what are some other kind of key takeaways that you've taken from this experience? Another big thing here, especially if you're trying to negotiate sub two reseller finance is that relationship. So it's a little term I call relationship marketing because they're carrying a note. Like this guy's carrying a pretty sizable note. So the most fundamental thing that you guys need to have between you is trust. They need to feel warm and fuzzy about you. Are you a creditworthy individual? Individual? Are you an honorable guy? So what helped me out a lot too, and I think a great tip for anybody listening out there is how can you portray that to your seller? So for me, I write what I call love letters. And so I'll send them a letter with a, and I'll have a photo of whatever me, with my wife, family, and it'll describe just very briefly about who I am and you know what we stand for and you know, what we're going to do with this property. I like to be very upfront, very transparent about who we are and make them feel warm and fuzzy. I think having that connection just like that makes them feel a lot better. So you're not just like a, a name on an offer sheet yeah. with a number like, Hey, this is Taylor Wing. Like I see his face. This is his background, his bio. This is what his net worth is. I feel pretty good about this guy. He, he can pay, he's going to pay me on time. So I feel comfortable holding this big note for him. That's do you think your do you think your military background helps? Absolutely. I think I think luckily in in America the military is held with the, looked at from the like the civilians in a positive light. Like they think okay, this is an honorable profession. Maybe there's a little bit more trust from people that come from a military background or being from like let's say West Point. I think has also a something good that could be said about my character or something like that. I'm not going to say everybody from the army or everybody from West Point is just a great guy, but it helps me build a little bit more of that like rapport and trust. So I think that definitely does help people feel a little bit better about who we are, where we served, we did our part. So I think people feel pretty good about that. Got it. And I think just a broader lesson, right? Pull out whatever part of your background, whether where you went to school, your job, how you grew up, just anything that can just give some life to you versus just yeah, a name on an offer sheet. Just be able to differentiate yourself. That's really cool. How many properties have you done? And now you're back. How many properties have you done using creative financing? Is this everything besides the first VA loan? Is it all been creative or do you have it's, a few mortgages out there too? Yeah. So I, 
combination of house hacking with VA or FHA, uh, a lot of burrs, and then a lot of sub to seller finance deals. That's pretty much that's pretty much our whole portfolio blend right there. Is, is those three. I haven't really purchased anything conventional. I bought one turnkey rental property, the one I mentioned earlier. I bought that first one and I was like, ah, this is not scalable. And so everything else after that has been either a burr or something in that creative finance realm. Got it. T tell us, like, maybe you just spend a few minutes on burr. So burr, for the folks that don't know, is you buy something, you rehab it, you refinance it, you rent it out. Might have missed an R in there, but that's... That, that's, that's the gist. <laughs> That's the burr strategy. In, in short-term rentals, there's a thing called stir, which outside the scope of this, but stir is just a play on burr. And stir just means like short-term rental versus um, versus a long-term rental. But tell us about, it sounds like it was a way to get you started. You're able to pull out your equity. What's your buy box? What do you look for in a good burr? And then the second part of that question is, do you still see opportunities using burr? Because we've looked and it's, a lot harder. It's not easier. It's not an easy task right now to find yeah. a good bird deal. Tough. I think what it mostly is interest rates. Interest rates changed the equation for me a little bit on burr. So back in 2020, 2021, I would say mostly I did burr. Okay. And then now as the market shifted, so did my investment strategy. So now it's mostly less burrs. I would say less volume, but higher, like less quantity, more quality burr. Um, and then mostly creative finance. Like right now, I'm almost only buying deals that are creative finance because I got to be interest rates to cash flow. That's been my strategy mostly in this market is that creative finance piece. But with Burr, I started off doing those Burrs in Fayetteville, North Carolina, where I was stationed. And I would probably buy them in the maybe around like the 90 to 150,000. And then they were appraising for 180 to maybe 230 in that range. That's like the price range. And I like to buy in a little bit better neighborhoods. So like standard 32. And when I buy, I had, okay, would a mil my standard was, hey, would a military family live here? If it checked the box, yes, that's the type of renter I'd want to have. That's the type of property I would want to own. So nothing like D class or anything lower end, but nothing too nice because it wouldn't cash flow. But there's this very good medium in between like that, maybe high C, low B class yeah. neighborhoods is what I was really looking so. so I just want to hit on that point. I think it's really, I think it's really great that you had an avatar of the renter that you wanted. And I, like that, I don't care as much. And I think that's actually really important is if you're going to burr, right? If you're going to eventually that's going to be a long-term rental for you, you want to make sure that you have an idea of who actually will rent that. And then you can structure that property around that. For a lot of people, it's like being a school, a good school district, for example, like that would always attract families, obviously military. I, I don't know the exact criteria, but I'm sure there's certain things that people look for and being able to build your investment strategy around that, I think it's super smart. So just wanted to highlight that. But it seemed, when I looked at it, I thought it was always like thin, right? It was like, you buy something 150, you buy, because we tried it, we tried in all candor, in all candor, we tried to do a burr. It didn't work out that well because I think we met, like we hired someone else to manage it and it took away most of the margin. <coughs> Excuse me. So we were in for a hundred, we, we bought it for 50, we put 50 in, probably like 10 of holding costs. It's ARV is like 120, I think. And then, but we, oh, yeah, 70, we only got 70, we only got 70%. So we only got 80 out of it. So like we're still in it for 30. It yeah. Was an opportunity zone deal. So like net we're fine. Good hold. Yeah. You're going to hold it for a while, but what are typical margins that people look for with the, with the burr? 
Yeah. And for me, when I was doing burrs, I was like, I need to refinance all of my capital or I need to have less than 10,000 in. So if I wasn't able to recycle all of it, or at least have a very small percentage of the money in, I wouldn't do it. Okay. So having that ability to recycle that capital is what allowed me to scale really quickly, especially army salaries, not anything great. I didn't have to make a ton of cash. So I like every cent mattered to me. Okay. So I needed to have that money momentum. So for most of those burrs, I was able to recycle hundred percent of my capital, oh, cool. come very close to it. Awesome. And how did rates drive? Like, why are rates so impactful on that strategy? So, I use a lot of DSCR lending for those that don't know debt service coverage ratio. Again, when I mentioned before with Fannie Freddie conventional type of loans, in your personal name, you're capped out at ten. But even getting to ten loans is tough. It's really going to put a detriment on your DTI. So. I only was able to put a couple in my name before I started pushing those DTI limits for those guidelines. So I transferred over to DSCR lending, which is how I did most of them. So with DSCR lending, rates are a little bit higher. The money's a little bit more expensive. But back then, even with DSCR, I was probably locking in like fives. So yeah, it was pretty decent. Fives or maybe sixes. I was able to cash out. I think I had a minimum cash hold or cash flow threshold of I need to make at least four to 500 bucks a door for it to be worth my time. But as interest rates drove up now, if you want DSCR loans, you're looking at what 8% maybe, if not higher, if you want to buy it down, pay a ton and points to buy it down, you can get into the sevens. (laughs) Taylor, I got a quote last week. 30 year Fannie Freddie, 8.125 with two and a half up front. Huh? I would, yeah, that's pretty, I need to talk to your DSCR lending. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's obviously in terms of different, but that's not bad. I thought it'd be north of 10. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Huh. Regardless, yeah, DSCR, hard money, all that stuff is pretty expensive. So it changes the equation. So now you're making a lot less per door. So it's, I had to switch my cash flow minimum to like, all right, if I can make at least 200 a door, it's still worth my time, right. which is like not, it's, it's just like a spigot. It's nice to get a couple hundred bucks every month. But if I were just to flip it and offload it, I could make a turn a very quick profit of 30, maybe 40 grand if I were just to sell it on the back end of that renovation. So, so what's more valuable now? Is it the quick 30, 40 grand or is it the 200 bucks? a month for however long I decide to hold. Rents will catch up. So I think as a long-term play, you still win. You gotta weigh your pros and cons there. So I don't do as many burrs right now because of interest rates. Cause I think the last one I closed on, I right under 200 a month in cash flow. So it's, I think I'll just start, yeah, start selling these. So I don't hold on to as many burrs. I mostly flip right now. And then the creative finance stuff is what I wanna hold on to. So let's talk about, let's talk a little about that, about the creative financing part. Just but before I leave the burr point, another thing for me on that, when we were look, when we were looking at that was also, or sorry, flipping, because burr, you're just refinancing, is a tax piece. You, yep. they're all, it's all short, it's all short-term cap gains. You oh yeah. Do you just, is there, have you found creative ways to defer that liability? Like how do you manage your, how do you manage that? I run all of my active income, AKA like the income I make from doing active real estate, like flipping, wholesaling, I run that through S corporation. And so I'm able to, I think, maximize my deductions as much as I can. That's all you can do is try to maximize your deductions and through that S corporation to try to minimize your tax liability as much as you can. But you bring up a fantastic point because 
flipping income is the most heavily taxed. Yeah. It sucks. Yeah, it yeah. sucks. And that's and this, this is a plug short-term rentals a little bit, and that's why I really we, we looked at it after I quit my job or when I was in the verge of like, all right, I don't I don't want to do this either. I don't want to do finance forever. And the tax part was actually a big thing when I was when we were thinking about it. Short-term rentals really provide. There's some, there's definitely downsides in a different business model, but there's some really meaningful tax benefits there. Like the best I've ever seen, and I've seen a lot of different. I've seen as an M&A banker, I've seen a lot of very creative tax structures and everything. And I'll just tell you that this is the best I've ever seen. There's nothing else like this available to a retail investor. And it, with the simplicity and the low cost, right? You can obviously like structure like a crazy trust and this, that, and the other, bend yourself into a pretzel and pay a, a ton in lawyer fees and accounting fees. But with short-term rentals, it's actually a very, very simple process to do. So just for folks, and I just want to highlight that point just for folks. Every strategy has its pros and cons, but just never forget the tax piece because there's always a silent partner in every single deal that you have, and that's Uncle Sam, it's the IRS. And if you don't manage that relationship appropriately, you know, you're going to have a surpri- nasty surprise in April every year because you're not managing that liability appropriately. So just always know that the tax boogeyman is there and you need to, you really need to manage that. Before I, so I'm going to move on, I'm going to move on to creative financing and I want to spend more time on here. What are some of the deals that you're doing now from, from, from an investing perspective? Are you doing more sub twos, more seller financing? Like, how do you, like, how do you use the tools in your toolkit as you're growing your portfolio? And first of all, fantastic point about the taxes. Couldn't agree more. Taxes are something I figured out after the fact, after I started making money. And I went, oh, crap. <laughs> so now I care. Once you start making money, you're going to definitely care a lot more about taxes. But yeah, to segue into this next point, right now, again, I'm full-time real estate professional. So I spend all my time just hunting for deals. That's what I do now. I buy real estate. When I go and talk to homeowners... I always offer them a couple options. So I'm almost like a consultant to these folks. I say, hey, I'd love to buy our property and here are the options that I have for you. We can either give you this cash offer. And if it's a cash offer, if we're flipping, it's almost always a low ball, like a pretty low, because we have, we need a pretty good margin to flip. So here's the low cash offer, or here is my, my creative finance offer. So I give them a couple options. So. Now it lets them give them a little bit more flexibility to pick, hey, this, maybe this works for me, maybe this doesn't. So we'll have that discussion on what is, your, what is the mortgage information on the property? Do you have a mortgage? Do you own free and clear? So I know ahead of time how I could diagnose the issue and what financing solution I can bring to the table. So if they say something like free and clear, I'm already thinking, hey, we're going to do some seller finance. Or if they owe, if they have 90% equity, we could probably just pay off that position at the closing table or whatnot. If, now, if they have less than that and they have some kind of note or mortgage on the property, then I'm thinking, hey, let's take this thing on step two. If they need some of that equity, maybe we can wrap it into a second on the property and sell it, finance that the equity, or we can pay it in cash if we wanted to at closing too. There's so many different ways that we can take down this deal. So I present them all those options and let them pick. I help them. I'll coach them up and say, here's the benefits here. Here's the benefits here. Either way, we're going to be able to help you out. And so if I buy cash, probably I'm going to just offload it on the back end and sell it. I've been, I'm an agent too down here, so I have a real estate license. So I'll just throw it up on the MLS and I'll list it after we finish the renovation. And if they're open to terms, that's when I'm holding it into my portfolio. Got it. Okay. Do you work with any investors or is this all solely you and your wife? So my partner, Will, which I think you spoke to a little while back, 
he helps me on the, with the Black Knights front. So he's helping me with the home buying business. He does a little bit more operations, and I'm a little bit more acquisitions focused. Okay. Oh, okay. Cool. Cool. Was, that's cool. I like you. You found a business partner through through your West Point network, and that's what Will and I. And that was the earlier episode. It was episode three with William. Just really cool about how just how tight and dense this West Point network is for you guys, and it's a great launch pad for a real estate career and really any career that requires a baseline of trust. And candidly, most business requires a lot of trust and you're able to have that shared experience, have that credibility up front. It really, it really can accelerate your progress. So kind of kudos to both of you guys on that. On, I guess, so question there is, don't you feel like you are, you got to teach them too? Because a lot, I talk a lot of owner, and especially if you're a homeowner that's free and clear, that means they probably held it for a very long time. They understand a mortgage, kind of anything outside of that, they're probably confused on amortization and rates and term and balloons, all that stuff, all that fun stuff. How, oh, yeah. how do you manage that with them? Because I feel like that's a lot of handholding you have to do. It is. So most folks aren't well-versed. Your common American doesn't know all, all these terms that we might know in the real estate industry. So that's why when I come to them, I tell them, hey, I'm not really a salesman. I'm more of like a consultant. I'm here to give you advice. I'm here to consult you. So it is, it's a coaching process, especially doing like those more savvy things like seller finance deals or sub two, especially because there's a lot of nuances in there. You're going to have a lot of pushback, a lot of rebuttals. So you got to know your stuff. You have to be on your toes and be able to answer, articulate, and make them feel good about, Hey, this guy knows his stuff. He's able to answer all my questions. And now I'm well-educated on the process. I know exactly what to expect from doing a transaction here with Taylor. Got it. Yeah, and I think on the sub two side, I'm not, but I'm not an expert by any means. I just, just it's an interesting strategy. So sub two for folks, it's where you assume where the sorry, not assume the mortgage. The mortgage is stays in place. It's probably still in the original name of the borrower, and you will make the payments on their behalf, or you pay them and make the payments. And I also was very curious about that. Is like, how does that actually? You know, does the money go to that? If I was to do it, and I'm the buyer, right? Um, it's great for me, but like, I don't really want to give them the money because what if they don't pay the mortgage and then there's a bunch of potential downside risks that, how do you manage it? I was also curious. Yeah. So you pretty much hit the nail on the head. Basically what a, it, a sub two, there's a big difference between assuming a loan and taking on the mortgage sub two. So you, instead of assuming the loan, we're assuming the liability for the payments. So two very different things. Cause if you're assuming the loan, you're actually talking to the lender and you're getting that loan transferred into your name. Now it's actually your loan. It's on your credit. When you do it sub two, you're not telling the bank. It's like a, I don't want to say backdoor, but the backdoor, you're not telling the bank that this property has exchanged hands and you're simply just assuming the liability for those payments. It's almost like you're a third party. So the way I transact on these is we sign a limited power of attorney. So I'm able to speak on behalf of this loan and I get third-party authorization with that bank or that lender as a third party on the account. So now I can speak on behalf of the account and I don't make payments. Definitely. You don't want to do this. You do not want to pay the homeowner directly. You want to pay the bank directly because who knows what John or Jimmy or Billy is going to do with a thousand bucks that you've just Venmo yeah. them or something. So you pay the bank directly and you can do this a number of ways. You can take their like login information, log in and set up your own payments in there. You can call the bank every month and pay over the phone, or you can hire like a third party loan 
servicer and they can take, yeah, they can take it over for you where you basically pay them and they'll pay that bank directly, but they're going to charge you some kind of service fee to do that. So there's so many different ways that you can make those payments, but definitely want to make sure you're paying the yeah, bank directly. Yeah, they just give you the first, like it's a long, 30 years is a long term, however long the term is, right? Like they oh, change, yeah. so you don't really want to, I mean, you don't want to be holding to them. Do you ever get into, and I'll move on for here, this is more out of my curiosity. Obviously, like most mortgages have a change of control, right? Where they're like, hey, if it moves, then they get to call the loan. Not, they don't ever, it's rare. I hear it's very rare. But do you ever get them a seller that, you know, or do you, are you ever concerned that it's like leverage on them, that it's a form of leverage they have on you for throughout the life of that relationship that they can be like, I want more, this, that, and the other. If not, I'm going to call the lender and say that I don't own this anymore and you have to deal with the balloon. Does that ever, Yeah. is that, have you ever heard that happen? Is that oh a yeah. Okay. It's, it hasn't happened to me, but I've heard a story one time of a seller based blackmailing saying, Hey, yeah. give me more after, after they've already closed. Since he knows what a sub two is now, no, with that information, arming it, weaponizing it and saying, Hey, you need to give me more money or I'm going to tell the bank on you basically. So in my contracts, my sub two contracts, we have that in there where like they, they can't tell the lender or else it's, it can trigger like a lawsuit basically. So they're not allowed to go and after the fact and try to tell the lender on us or something like that. It. But it's very possible that they could do something like that or that maybe the bank even just finds out because it's the due on sale clause. So yeah. if the bank finds out the property exchanges hands, then the remaining principal balance is immediately due upon the sale. So you could get stuck saying, hey, there's $200,000 remaining on this note. It's due right now. Yeah. But there's, I definitely wouldn't worry about it. It happens very rarely, kind of like you mentioned, especially if you're with a bigger servicer like Chase, Wells Fargo, Bank of America. They definitely do not check those types yeah. of things. Yeah. I would only maybe worry if you're with like a small little family mom and pop regional <laughs> bank, then they might check it. <laughs> They'll go down to the county records office under lunch. Yep. Just to, just to <laughs> I know there are ways around it. And thank you for educating me and the audience on this. It's a very, I think that uh, creative financing and midterm rentals, which I also want to hit on as well, are they're getting more attention and you are very early, you've been very early in that. So I think it's a great resource to talk about your journey through these different investment strategies. And I, before we dig in on that, I just want to highlight on, it's important to be, as a real estate investor, as an investor in general, but a real estate investor, it's really important to have like multiple tools in your tool, in your toolbox, right? You don't just want to do one thing and like you only know how to do one thing because the market changes, interest rates goes up, prices go up, whatever the case may be. And your strategy might've worked really well in 2021, right? It's not going to work really well in 2024, but it might work really well in 2028, right? So like you want to keep the tool sharp, but like you just, you don't know. So you want multiple tools that you can use depending on the environment to continue to make money, right? To whether it's spurring or flipping or whatever it is. So just educating yourself and understanding that I think is a really important process in becoming a really good investor and great segue to your investing journey. Tell us about midterm rentals. I know I talked about before we got on the show, what are you doing and what is what are midterm rentals? Let's start there first. Yeah, kind of like how we talked about a little bit before this podcast. It's almost like a new, I don't know, uh, popular thing that's been growing lately is midterm. It's like a hybrid between long-term rentals, which is your standard one-year lease versus your short-term, which is more, could be a night stay to a week or so, whatever. So midterm is like this in like middle ground that's like 30 days 
to maybe six months or at least under a year. So it's not quite a short-term rental, but not as long as a long-term rental. These folks, you think about like, they've always been around, but they're labeled more as like corporate rentals before. Now this is new phrase called midterm rentals. So what we focus on is exactly that. Maybe working people that are staying in town that need a corporate rental to live for a while. And our specific niche is travel nurses. They're the perfect candidates because short-term rentals, they don't need to spend as much money going through the short-term rental going on Airbnb, but they can still spend a decent amount of money to get a furnished rental that has all your amenities that they need. So they don't have to go out and buy their own pots and pans, get their own internet, but they can stay there for as long as their contract's in duration in that city. Got it. So on, on the midterm rental side, like what's your, like when you think about hurdle rates, what's your rate of return that you want to make? And you were talking about your long-term rentals kind of was at 400, you know, that might've come down a little bit. Like what do you, like how do you contrast that with midterm rentals and how do you decide if this is going to be a long-term rental or a midterm rental? Yep. So my minimum cash flow threshold is like a thousand bucks a month. So if I'm going to spend the money to, cause there's a lot of more startup costs if you're going to take on anything like mid or short-term rental. You got to furnish the place. You got to equip it with your cable or whatever, your Netflix, your smart TVs. So if I'm going to spend the money for that additional startup cost, I want to be making at least a thousand extra bucks a month. So I want to make a thousand bucks in net cash flow. That's, that's great. So <laughs> I know short-term guys that don't do a thousand dollars per door. So that's great that you can do a thousand dollars. Please don't let me interrupt you. But yeah. So that's what I look for. And we fell on midterm rentals. My wife was a travel nurse. This is, that's honestly how we fell into it. She was a travel nurse. She traveled across the country with me as I got stationed in different places across the States. And she was like, Hey, I understand the travel nurse market pretty well. I think we could do pretty well if we host again, starting off with the avatar, which has been our theme a little bit before it was like, Hey, we had a military family in mind. Now it was like, Hey, we have a this travel nurse avatar in mind. And we focused on that. We would buy these smaller mom and pop multi-units like within a mile of the major hospital. So we bought the properties with the avatar, with the client in mind, and we equipped them with what a travel nurse might want. So that's like your blackout curtains, your, a lot of them work night shift, uh, uh, yeah, oh, even point. like oh. earplugs in the nightstand. So, if, you know, if it's loud, they can use that. Those little, eye masks that you can wear when you're sleeping. We got those, a very comfortable bed set up because it's, we want it to be as comfortable as possible for them. They, the nurses, they work long 12 hour shifts, they're on their feet. We just want them to come home and be comfortable. So we equip our places exactly with, with that client in mind. That's great. It, it, you like, I'm so glad you made that point. And I didn't think about it. That's a great point. Like you, the avatar, like what do they actually need? And it's great that your wife is a travel nurse so they can understand, okay, like, they're working overnight. If you have crappy shades or like you have those like just cheap Home Depot, $100 ones, like the light gets through, they can't sleep. So that's, and I'm sure it's a good referral business too. Hey, stay in this place. It's great. Got great, great bed, great sleep. That's awesome. I got a question for you. What don't travel nurses need that like a kind of like a standard MTR, a midterm rental? What would something be like, eh, they don't really need me. They don't watch so much TV. Like there's no TV. Like as an example, but is there anything like that? I would say the biggest difference maybe between short-term and like our midterms is like, it doesn't need to be super sexy. It doesn't need to have a cool mural or anything that's like super interesting, or it's not a vacation rental by any means. These are 
a little bit more economy. Travel nurses don't want to spend an arm and a leg. They want it to be with budget in mind and just convenient, close to the hospitals. Ours aren't all jazzed up. It's, we want to buy comfortable, durable furniture pieces, but there's nothing special or super exciting about them. (laughs) So they don't need anything super sexy. It's simple, simple and sweet. That's, that's something too, right? It's okay, like you don't want to over-decorate. It doesn't need to be, from vacation rental, for example, you definitely need to up your design game. Versus two years ago, and I've like really preached this, is you guys spend extra, you know, we were spending 10K on a two-bedroom. You guys spend 11K, maybe a little more, right? You need to spend an extra thousand, fifteen hundred bucks. Make somewhere really, like something that pops, something that like would grab someone's attention because the level of competition has just come up. That would be just a very poor investment decision if we're, a mental rental for a travel nurse, right? Because you're never going to get paid on a nice decoration. Like they care about really like nice blackout curtains or like a really comfortable bed, maybe a foot bath or something right there on their feet all day. <laughs> maybe not that because it's, like, it's pretty gross, but things like that, you just think about tailoring the property to, to, to that. Do you do any, as we kind of start winding down the show, do you do any short-term rentals? So what we do is we do post on Airbnb but it's almost like just to fill those gaps in between our midterm rentals. So we'll get a lease signed and maybe it'll expire, let's say at the end of June here. And then let, maybe we have a two week gap before the next lease starts. We'll have it on Airbnb and just fill those dates with a short term. But we do not have any properties that are strictly intended purpose only for the short term space. I do want to get into that. I know you, earlier you mentioned you had some cabins in Tennessee. I'm looking at maybe doing something like that. I'm down here in and beautiful Florida near the beach. I would love to have some stuff down here as well. So I'm, I am looking to get a little bit more into the short-term space, especially. Yeah, it, it's a different set of it's definitely a different set of considerations. And just back to the point about having a broad, a broad toolkit. There's definitely there's a hospitality component to it. I wouldn't say it's the hospitality business, like in totality. There's definitely parts of it you got to tease out. There's a lot more turns. There are more aspects to that, but they're also, once you dial it in, the cash flow can be really materially better than definitely long-term rentals, short-term, mid-term rentals, generally speaking. It sounds like you're doing it at a high level. Congrats to you on that. $1,000 a month on MTR is very good. There's also a tax component too to, the, to it that I think is generally not available to, that I know is not available to mid-term and long-term stays. It's just... What, and I always come back to, what are you optimizing for? If you're optimizing for, I want to build a big portfolio and I don't really want to deal with it, there's a certain way to do that. If you're like, hey, I need to build up cash quickly, and then you burr, right, or you flip. So just, like, whatever you're optimizing for, there's like a strategy for that. Short-term rentals, I think it's more of, if you're a good system builder, and if you're a good, I think that's where I wanted prereqs, I would say. If you're a good system builder, you can, there's just a lot of moving pieces, but to be fair, they're all, not that sophisticated, just like rope stuff that there's just a lot of them and they all, they're independent. They cascade on each other. But if you're like a yeah. good systems person and you go, okay, these are the things that need to happen, right? Boom, boom. They need to be in this order. They need to be done, you know, done this way. And then you, once you can figure that out, it's actually not too bad, but it takes time. It takes time to do, but maybe that's yeah. a topic Could, for a different episode. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. And bring up a great point is why I love real estate so much. There's with real estate. I mean, it's all under the real estate umbrella, but there's so many different ways to make money. And I think for anybody listening out there, it's like, you just need to find which strategy works for you. And like Michael, what you're saying and what your goals are, you can construct a strategy based on your goals and just, it's there's so many ways you can flip, 
wholesale, Airbnb, long-term rental, burr, creative finance. It's your oyster. Yep. Yeah. Depending on your level of time, your financial like wherewithal, your financial literacy, like where are you at in life, how much time you want to put into it, how much money you have, what do you want to make, and then I think folks can you can construct a plan, a good plan that is actionable that you know that you can get there. And I think closing on that note, business is a team sport, and I always like to end with this question: What is one of the kindest things that someone has done for you along this journey? Wow. I can't take credit for everything I've always done. Without my network, without all these individual people that I met along the journey, I don't think I would be where I'm at today. Everybody that I've had like networking calls or maybe did a deal with along some way on my journey has helped me out tremendously because it's a process. I don't, I'm not, I wasn't, I'm not a real estate expert off the get-go. It took me a long time to get to where I'm at. So I've had mentors, I've had people that have played a big role in my life that allowed me to get to where I'm at now. I think just the willingness in our community to like, share information, share wealth, share knowledge, helps out like the younger guys, the folks that are just starting off tremendously. So it's hard to say maybe one particular act of kindness. Man, so many people have provided me so much value along the years. And so I'm just grateful for anybody that's out there that's listening (laughs) that we've had some encounter along the way and we've shared some knowledge or shared a deal together. Just extremely grateful for all the opportunities been pushed across my plate. That's great you said that there's the network and the people along the way that helped you. And I think it probably speaks to you, right? And that to receive, to receive, you have to give, right? And being open about your journey, the challenges, the opportunities, like it can be really helpful to someone that things that might seem really basic to you, right? To anyone that has been doing something for a long time, it doesn't have to be real estate, it can be really anything. If you just take the time to explain something to someone or give them a little insight, a little encouragement, it can really go a long way. And I think that's why I really like this job and kind of what I do now as an investor in real estate versus what I was doing in finance. It's definitely a very zero sum game. This is just a much more constructive community. And I just think life is, life is better that way. On that, look, where you have so much knowledge to share. Where can people find you to learn more about what you're doing where in Florida and what area in, fo- in Florida are you focused on? Yep. So I'm, I'm specialized here in the Treasure Coast region of Florida. So for those that don't know Florida geography as well, I pretty much cover like kind of Fort Pierce all the way down to where I live in like Stewart, Palm City. So we're like a little stretch of coastline that's just directly north of West Palm Beach. So I think most people know where West Palm is. We're just right north of there. So West Palm is leading into our area as well. We're growing just as fast as them, it feels. So that's where I'm located and I'm most active on Instagram. My username is just my name, just Taylor Wing, all one with an underscore at the end, Taylor Wing underscore. I try to post most of what I'm doing in my life on that Instagram so anybody can follow along the journey and hopefully gain some value and insights from what we have to share with the world. Perfect. And so folks that are looking at Treasure Coast, reach out to Taylor. I will post his Instagram link in the bio, in the show notes. So you can just access it there. And Taylor, thank you very much for spending the time with us today and sharing all the knowledge and the journey. It's a great pleasure. And I hope to have you, I hope to have you back on. Likewise, Michael. Thanks for your time. This is a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on today.